I appreciate his reminder to all of us, not only those who are in the healthcare professions, but at, um, at one point in time, I believe many of us had these idealistic uh, visions of how God can use our training, the things that God has blessed us with, but only to be uh, swept up with the blessings themselves. And we need to be just reminded periodically what God uh, gifted us with and how he wants to use us. And so uh, I want you to, to really consider uh, tithing not only your money, but your time. Tithing some of your time uh, for the Lord's work. Uh, not only at things uh, that benefit your kids like VBS, but kids that don't have advocates. And so, um, you know, uh, our Go Honduras trip is a wonderful way in which you can go not only by yourself, but with your kids uh, to go and serve our church plant as well as our sponsored children there. Um, you know, I just want to point to the new pastor. Uh, if you're a member, you got this note that Iglesia Evangelica de Santidad in La Paz, Honduras, is the church, the, if, the, the building itself is the building that our offering, our missions offering about a year and a half ago, we, we uh, were raising about 70,000. We collected more than that. This is the building that we built for the church. And all the children uh, in the Compassion Program here are the children that many of you support. Um, it began with Norman and Virginia uh, as pastors, but now they got a new pastor, uh, Jaime and Wendy Garcia, and so uh, Munoz. And so we need to be praying for uh, them in their leadership as they um, uh, lead faithfully that ministry. Kim, um, look forward to continuing partnership with them. And I'm hoping to go out in August or so to meet uh, him. And, the new and, and just uh, see how our church is doing. A couple of other announcements. If you, are, uh, if you consider living up your home church but have never gone through membership, our Grow 101 is occurring in May. Sign-ups are occurring outside in the patio as well as online. And uh, finally, VBS. Um, you know, right now, our big push is for v uh, Easter, but as soon as Easter is done, our big, big push would be VBS, and if you haven't been around uh, Living Hope uh, for a while, um, you might not realize that VBS is a pretty big deal around here. We get uh, close to 300 kids here uh, during the summer, and we get close to 200 volunteers, and we're, we're almost halfway there already, uh, over 100 volunteers, but we need about 100 more, so if you are a regular attendee of Living Hope, you don't have to be a member to help with this. Uh, please sign up online or out in the patio. So today is what um, we call the church calls Palm Sunday. And I was having a conversation with someone and, and this person asked, well, what exactly is Palm Sunday? And even those who have been in the church a long time, it's a little bit they're vague on what Palm Sunday is. It's a Sunday before Easter. Most of us kind of technically know it as that. Um, and, and, and there's some uh, imageries surrounding Palm Sunday and the palm leaves themselves remind us of the rituals around Palm Sunday. And we have a vague idea what that involves. And if you have not done so yet, turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. 
John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. You can turn your pages or fire up your app, and I'll be reading from the ESV version. And this is how the Apostle John um, tells us about what occurred on Palm Sunday. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Some of these don't mean a lot to uh, you or, or us in our culture, um, but there are some imageries here. You know, a long time ago when I was a lot younger, uh, when I was in college and right out of college, I was involved in a lot of my friends' weddings. In fact, I was either a best man or a groomsman probably, uh, you know, over 10 or a dozen times. And uh, the rituals are a little bit different back then. It's become a lot more complicated now. But really, as a groomsman, I only had a few duties, and, um, and one of the duties that we had as groomsmen is to prepare for when the bride and groom comes out of the chapel. And if you got married a long time ago, you know what it involves, right? That it would be our duty uh, to throw uncooked rice at the couple, right? And um, not cooked rice, but uncooked rice at the couples as they're coming out. And somewhere along the way, uh, California made that illegal. I don't know if you know that. But apparently because the starch of the rice made that birds fat. And so I'm not kidding you. Uh, you're not allowed to throw rice at the couples anymore. You're only allowed to throw uh, bird seeds. And when the couples are ready to get into the car, our, uh, you know, as, as groomsmen, our job is to decorate the car or graffiti the car. Right? And uh, one time, in, uh, yeah, somewhere along the way, I learned a hard lesson that you're not supposed to paint on the car itself, but only on the windows of the car. And also to tie things to the back of the car, whether it be cans or uh, shoes. And one of my greatest achievements is uh, when one of my uh, friends got married, I bought these little baby ducklings. I went to the farm and bought about half a dozen ducklings, and I put them in the back seat of the car for the bride and groom uh, to come and, and, and go away on their honeymoon with. Um, he didn't find that all that funny, though, for some reason. And so if you are walking down the aisle with a woman dressed in white, and as you exit the chapel and people throw uncooked rice at you and people have graffitied your car, tied things to the back of the car, do not be alarmed. There's a high probability that you just got married, right? And so when uh, Jesus is riding on a donkey, people laid down palm leaves and shouting Hosanna, what is occurring is that the people in town uh, are welcoming you into the town, proclaiming you as king, inaugurating you as the new king of Jerusalem. This is how we know Palm Sunday to be, okay? Most of us who've been in the church a little longer understand that Palm Sunday is 
tethered to an event that's going to occur within a few days. And the set of events is Good Friday, or the death of Jesus, and Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus, right? Those of us in the church understand that Palm Sunday is tethered to Good Friday, the death of Jesus, and Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. What I want to do today is tethered not only this pair of events, but another set of events that kind of mirrors it uh, to another set of death and reversal of that death. And I don't know if you have ever really uh, have put these together, but John kind of makes it clear that Palm Sunday is not only tethered to the death and reversal of death of Jesus, but the death and reversal of death of a man by the name of Lazarus. Okay? And this is important uh, because uh, Palm Sunday is a pivot point for both of these, and I'll explain how and why uh, by talking about Jesus and Lazarus and, and, and Christ and the crucifixion. Let's first of all look at Christ and Lazarus, and we are introduced to this connection in chapter 12, verse 9 through 11, okay? And as I read, I want you to look careful to two groups of people, the crowd and the chief priests, the crowd and the chief priests. Let me read from the ESV version. So this is, uh, as John states it, right before introducing the events of Palm Sunday. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus, the crowd and the chief priests. Let me uh, tackle the crowd first. Who uh, were the crowds? We find out uh, that the crowd, uh, in verse 12, that had come to the feast, had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The crowd were, uh, was the out-of-town people coming into Jerusalem for Passover. They had lined the streets, were singing Hosanna, proclaiming Jesus as king. And one of the reasons why they had come we find out in verse 9, and when we, if we just look at the Passover event, we're not told that as in detail, but when we look at the previous event, we're told that one of their motivations is that they're coming not only to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, uh, the person that Jesus raised from the dead. Verses 17 and 18, the crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why... The crowd went to meet him was that they heard uh, that he had done this sign. Now, let me ask you this question. A large crowd had gathered, uh, ushering in Jesus' Hosanna. What was their motivation? What caused them to say, Jesus, you are our king? And I, I am going to argue uh, for the idea that their primary motivation is because it was that uh, they believe Jesus to be a person who can solve their problems. He was the one who fed the 5,000 and plus people. 
He was the one who could heal all kinds of illnesses, including even reversing death as evidenced by Lazarus. He is the one who can potentially deliver them from their enemies, the Romans. In sum, the crowd gathered because they believed Jesus can give them what they wanted. And I believe that this, this is the crux, the primary motivation to almost all religions. The motivating force between most religious people is that their religion, the, the object of worship, whether it be Jesus in the church, Buddha in Buddhism, Muhammad, who is the primary prophet in Islam, or almost any other religion, the primary central figure um, is someone that they believe can give them ultimately something else. The object of worship in most religions is not the ends, but merely an, a means to an end. And even in the church, uh, the crowd gathers, not necessarily because we worship, but because we believe that Christ can get us what we want. Now, let's look at uh, another group of people here, and I'm going to call them the critics. He lays it out as the chief priests, but I'm going to call them the critics and lump them in with some of the other religious leaders that we are going to be introduced to as well. You know, um, these chief priests, and if you, th if you think about it, um, and our concept of priest is like the Catholic priest who wear a little collar and things of that nature. Or, um, and, and, and these people were religious authorities, and these are, people, these are people who are not only priests, but chief priests. They're archbishops. They not only were religious figures, but they had authority. They were supposed to be the mediators between man and God. They were supposed to be the caretakers of spiritual truth. They were supposed to be the shepherds of the people. Uh, they had heard that this man, uh, Jesus, had somehow raised Lazarus from the dead. The crowds had gathered around um, Jesus, uh, proclaiming him Hosanna, welcoming his, him as king. What do the religious leaders do? Okay. I want you to look at verse 10, and this is so bizarre. And I don't know if you've ever looked at this Palm Sunday event in light of how the religious leaders are responding, not to Jesus simply, but to Jesus and what he did for Lazarus. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. I don't know if he realizes, but there was an assassination plot by the religious leaders, not only to kill Jesus, but to kill also whom? Lazarus. Did you know that? That the, the religious leaders, the archbishops, the highest ranking spiritual authority in the nation had, had plotted not only to kill Jesus, but to this guy, Lazarus. What did he do wrong? Why they plotted this, we find in verses 11 and 12. Because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away 
and believing in Jesus. Where were they going? Away from. From them. The chief priests who had authority and power, many of the people were going away from them, checking out Lazarus and hearing themselves uh, proclaiming Jesus as king. Verse 19, so the Pharisees, another group of very religious people, said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The problem for these religious leaders was that uh, Jesus represented something. And and they became anti-Jesus because uh, he became a roadblock to what they were holding on to, and what they were holding on to was power, authority, and pride. And Jesus threatened that. We oftentimes read this narrative and think that the crowd and the critics are driven by radically different things, and in some ways they are. The crowd was pro-Jesus because they believed Jesus can give them what they wanted, and the critics who were anti-Jesus because he potentially can interfere with what they have. But I am here to say both the crowd and the critics were both driven by the same thing. It is their selfish, sinful greed. And they both are approaching uh, Jesus in similar but different ways. The crowd, um, out of their greed, wanted to use Jesus to get what they wanted. The critics wanted to oppose Jesus because they were threatened by Jesus from what they wanted. You know, America had long been a country of the crowd. And, and, and many of you know that American history says that, uh, that America is a, uh, a culturally a Judeo-Christian country. And so the crowd, the culture, has uh, followed, at least um, on the surface, Jesus because they believe being a Christian can help them get what they want. But recently, and I don't know if you read the headlines yesterday, in fact, there was a research done, a survey of, of about 2,000 Americans, and the headline read something like this, no religion has become the number one religion in the country. No religion. A survey done found that 23.1% claim no religion. Other titles said that no religion has tied Catholicism or Catholics as the leading religion, 23%. Now, I believe this, is, this particular survey is a little bit misleading because they differentiate evangelicals, 22.5%, and mainline Protestantism, which is at 11%, and put together, you know, that, that becomes a, the leading uh, religion. But at the same time, the fact that no religion has become almost a quarter of America is quite surprising for a country that historically had been a Judeo-Christian nation. You see, for the longest time in America, people thought that uh, following the crowd of Christianity uh, would help you to get what you want. 
but increasingly America has seen Christianity as interfering with what they want in terms of lifestyle, in terms of personal choice, in terms of how they want to live their life. And although our critics of today may not be religious, but nevertheless, they are anti-Christ because they believe Jesus interferes with what they want. Now, let's go on. Um, it, is, it is fascinating, the crowd and the critics and, and how Lazarus um, kind of shapes their view of Jesus but in verses 20 uh, and on, we're going to see a big turning point. Let's look at verse 20. It says that now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip, and when told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Remember these two guys, Andrew and Philip from last week? It's fascinating how he comes up here. Um, and they answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it's, it's, it's a quizzical kind of an answer. Uh, these two these Greeks came and said, we want to see Jesus. And they asked Jesus, and Jesus answers, it's time now for me to be glorified. Now, I believe this is a, a big turning point. Uh, a turning point in which Jesus goes from what I call the uncrucified Christ to the crucified Christ. And this is highly, highly important. And let me try to explain it uh, to us the best that I can. You see, so far, for 11 chapters uh, of John, Jesus has been teaching, healing, feeding, uh, and being a good example. He was the uncrucified time, and, and um, there were degreeing of, um, uh, groups of people that followed him, uh, became disciples, and stopped, and, and such. And in fact, there was an incident in which there were uh, 5,000 people whom he fed, if you recall. And at the end of it, it says, John chapter 6, verse 15, listen carefully, it's a, it's a verse that you might just kind of pass by, and it's so critically important. He had fed uh, the masses, and they're willing to follow Jesus. But in John chapter 16, 6, verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they, the crowd, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to come make him king, but Jesus said, no, no, no. And he, he went away. The continued refrain from John chapter 1 to John chapter 11 is this. John chapter 7 verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8 verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The refrain pre-Palm Sunday is that the hour has not yet come. The Greeks come and they say, we want to see Jesus. 
And Jesus gives this, this confusing answer, the hour has come. It's time now. I don't know if you realize it, um, but um, if you look at the, the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, you know, he spends a lot of time on the life of Jesus. Um, after all, Jesus lived 33 years. 30 years, uh, we see very little information except his birth. And he spends about three years of ministry, and we see a lot of detail. And he spends about mm, less than two months post-Palm Sunday. Okay, does that make sense? So 30 years, three years, and about a month and a half, Palm Sunday on. And you would think that if someone was writing a biography or a um, Wikipedia, uh, you know, exhaustive on the life, ministry, and death of Jesus, um, that there would be like an evening out. But let me give you some, like, proportions. Matthew has 28 chapters. He spends eight chapters Palm Sunday post. Mark has 16 chapters. Uh, Mark spends seven chapters on Palm Sunday following. Luke has 24 chapters. He spends about five chapters on Palm Sunday following. Now, John has 21 chapters. John spends 11 chapters on uh, Palm Sunday and on. For the gospel writers, the uncrucified period of Christ's life, the time has not yet come period. It's important because that's when Jesus was teaching. Jesus was a good example. Jesus was healing. Jesus was feeding. All of those things are good and they were necessary to establish a few things that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus sinned uh, not yet once, etc. All those things were important. But in some ways, those things won't distinguish Jesus from a lot of other a good religious leader. But the Palm Sunday and that pivot, pivot point will establish something critically important that he will go from an uncrucified Christ to the time of his glorification which is the crucified Jesus you see I, I, I believe the uncrucified Christ his good teaching his good modeling his good uh, healing and it, 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 being the giver of give, good gifts all those things are good, and the uncrucified Christ is the Christ um, that many people within the church even worships. And we try uh, to do everything to cater to the crowd to give them what they want, great music, to give messages that, that people can relate to and are attracted to, that we uh, have testimonies by beautiful people 
and we, we put on the pedestal those who are successful, and we unintentionally, listen carefully, we unintentionally uh, deliver the message that if you become a follower of this version of Jesus, you will be healthy, you will be well-fed, that you will be happy and you won't have any trouble in this lifetime. That we preach an uncrucified Jesus. But when this moment came in John chapter 12, when the Greeks, Greeks asked, but we want to actually see Jesus. He said, it's time for me to be glorified. It's time for me to reveal myself fully. What does it mean for him to be glorified? Verses 24 and 25. Listen with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. He gives this analogy. They say, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, it's time. Unless a wheat falls into the ground, and it's buried into the cold, dark, wet ground, unless it's willing to die to itself, it cannot give life. What is he talking about? Post Palm Sunday, Jesus continues to this, uh, with this new refrain. He's been saying, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time. Now he says, John chapter 12, verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. John chapter 17, verse um, uh, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son uh, may glorify you. What is he talking about when he says the hour has come? For me to be glorified. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. All right? Unless the wheat is willing to uh, be buried in the ground, die to itself, he can't give life again. Now, I want us to understand Palm Sunday is not merely a wedding ceremony where people are celebrating, but it is a pivot point where Jesus is going from a good teacher, a giver of gift, good gifts, a miracle worker, to the crucified Christ, where he's pointing out to the crowd that your needs are not just your physical needs and your desire for power, but your sickness is so much more than that. You know, I, I, I um, you know, I want many, some, many of you know that I had a heart attack and, you know, uh, you know, one of, one of the things I'm grateful about my heart attack is I can, you know, I can milk it for good sermon illustrations several times a year. So, um, I remember when, um, yeah, my, I was starting to have pains and it just wouldn't go away. And I have a pretty high pain threshold, I, you know. Um, finally, my wife took me to the emergency room and they hooked me up to the EKG monitor and then, and they got the, 
the results, and um, uh, and then suddenly everything, everything just sped up as as yeah. And they they said something, and all these people just suddenly appeared, and everyone was just on me, and they're doing stuff to me. Um, and I knew enough about certain things since my father had a um, you know bypass and and everything, but they didn't even explain to me what was going on. They were just doing stuff. And as they were wheeling me to another room, I had to ask, did I have a heart attack? And in which whoever was attending to me says, yes, you are having a heart attack. And uh, apparently I was having a STEMI heart attack, pretty serious. Two out of my three arteries were 100% uh, you know, blocked and it, you know, the, the, it, was, it was pretty bad, I guess. You know, at that moment in time, I had all of these healthcare professionals around me uh, giving me their 100% attention. At that moment, I could have, I could have taken the opportunity to tell them, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting old. My vision is not as good. I could have told them about, you know, there are times when I get up in the morning, my back aches a little bit. You know, I could have told them about some of my other complaints. But once, once they found out and I found out that I was in the middle of the heart attack, all of my other desires and wants kind of just disappeared and saying, we need to treat this. This is life and death for you. People were gathering, give me food, give me physical healing, give us deliverance from the Romans. I was saying, but I want power and control. But Palm Sunday is a day when Jesus is declaring that, you met, you, that you've been following an uncrucified Christ because you believed your greatest needs were things that were being done to you or you, the things that you were being deprived of. But your greatest needs are not those things. But your greatest need is something that's happening within you. That your heart is broken. That you're a sinner and, and, and selfish in need of forgiveness. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to the crowd and to the critics is once we realize what the diagnosis is, you'll realize what you are not wanting is a powerful king who will sit on the throne, but rather a king who would be willing to get off the donkey and climb on the cross and die so that we may be forgiven to solve us, to solve our greatest problems. The crowds were pro-Jesus because they believed he can give them what they want. The critics were anti-Jesus because they believed he got in the way of what they wanted. There's a third category of people. I don't know if you kind of noticed. The third category of people were the disciples. And let me tell you about these disciples. They didn't 
know everything. In fact, they were confused and we're told that they did not understand, even though they had all these insights and they were told the, the parables and what they all meant. And they were told explicitly that Jesus will die and rise again. They didn't quite know. That there is a group of people whom Jesus, although Jesus spent a lot of time with relationally, that even at the end, they were bickering, fighting among, them, among themselves. Hey, hey who's going to be CEO or VP here? That when push came to shove, that they would scatter and deny when it really counted. The third category of people, though, will be the people whom we will come to know as Christians. A Christian. We're different from the crowd and that we're not coming to Christ simply to get what we want, but we're coming to Christ for Christ's sake. We're not the critics because we believe that what Christ demands of us will get in the way of things that we want, but we trust Jesus knows us best. We don't know everything. We don't get along with everyone. And our commitments are weak. But Palm Sunday is a day when we realize that the problem lies not from on the outside but within. And our greatest need is for our Jesus to come, to go through Good Friday where he would die an unjust death and rise again on the third day on Easter Sunday. And we follow that Jesus. And to this this group of people, he says in chapter 12, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so he says to the Christians who are here in this room that Palm Sunday is not just a day when we have leaves on this pulpit, but it is a day when we pivot from worshiping simply a good teacher to worshiping a crucified Christ because he loves us and knows our deepest need, which is forgiveness for our sins. That's the message that we've been proclaiming again and again, and we will proclaim again on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And we've been asking and telling and encouraging you, hey, there are people around you um, in your life right now that need to hear this message. And we're gonna give it as clearly and as succinctly as possible this coming week. Um, and there's a lot going on this week, but I want you to be reminded of what's gonna happen, especially next Sunday. We have another video to just kind of remind us of our need to have a, a church to call home. Would you pay your attention? And as the video is playing, the worship team will come out.